You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies. Uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the, in the United States. Uh, if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. Uh, that will meet all your office and party needs. Go to MySweetLifeCookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to MySweetLifeCookies.com, check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. My guest today on Uncommentary is Lorianne Thompson. Lorianne calls herself a survivor, a storyteller, and a scholar. She's a wife and mother from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, who has become, partly as a result of her own life experiences, a fierce advocate for those who have suffered sexual trauma. She says, my specific goal is first to study, then to educate and widely communicate on the anatomy of childhood sexual abuse and the link to repeated re-victimization. To quote Jim Collins, there are two ways to change the world, the pen, the use of ideas, and the sword, the use of power. In the face of powerlessness, I have chosen the pen. Lori Ann Thompson, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Marty. I appreciate you coming back. I'm going to go ahead and spill the beans that, that you recorded a fantastic episode about, I don't know, maybe a month ago. Mm-hmm. That was set to release, and uh, James, my audio guru, is like, hey, the audio is messed up, and sure enough, I don't know what happened, but I I actually prayed. I had a prayer time before we started that it would not happen again so that we could mm-hmm. get this thing launched and let people hear your story. So uh, you're up in, uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, now, I, I guessed the last time, and I was wrong. I, I'm going to say mm-hmm. Ottawa. Is that right? We're we're in Ontario, just oh, just in the God. Ottawa area. Okay. Yeah, so that is uh, our nation's capital. It, uh, it we're still in our spring thaw. The grass is just starting to shoot up at this time. Now, for people who are geographically illiterate like myself, you're on the eastern side. Is that right? We're on the eastern side, so it is uh, north to New York State. Oh, okay, excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's home. So you've got uh, you've got a family. You live there, and um, you are. You just recently started some new work. I saw you tweet about the fire chief. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you said he's six foot five, and he said he's going to take care of me to make sure nothing happens to me or something <laughs> like that. I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I just uh, I'm reintegrating back into my my profession. In addition to still being in graduate school for child advocacy and policy, I stepped out of my profession as a registered kinesiologist and um, an occupational ergonomist. Uh, about a year ago, necessarily, just to a significant trauma load, mm. a trauma overload. And so like most trauma victims, I'm just trying to get back into the swing of things. And yeah, it was my first week, and I did meet with a fire chief. He was blissfully six foot five, and <laughs> I, think, I think it's possible that he's the first first safety manager that I've ever had in a workplace environment that looked me square in the eye and said, you deserve to be safe 
at work. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That is really that's really cool. So um, you're probably not uh, as widely known as some folks who have spoken out in your field. Uh, Correct. But I'm pretty sure that I ran across you on Twitter during uh, kind of the Me Too, um, Church Too uh, moment, which was several months ago now. And Rachel mm-hmm. Den Hollander was speaking out and her husband was kind of like promoting her and amplifying her voice some. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, a lady Bible teacher down in Texas named Beth Moore was speaking out a lot. And somewhere mm-hmm. in that mix, I ran across your Twitter feed. And at the time, I think your bio basically said, I'm only here to talk about what happened to me and to help people who are in trauma. <laughs> it's just really straightforward and really simplistic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start listening to what this lady's got to say. Mm-hmm. So, um, you've, you've been, you've been blogging. I noticed your blog just has gone through a recent redesign. It looks really good. And you're on Twitter uh, a lot. You do a lot of videos, two to three minute type things. Um, Mm -hmm. So a little background on yourself. Uh, Let everybody know kind of why, as much as you want, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, why you've experienced trauma and what has happened in your life uh, from that point to maybe to now and some of the decisions you've made along the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the opportunity to share some of that. I really, I really appreciate you. I appreciate this platform and, and uh, I feel privileged to be able to speak with you and, and your listeners. I'm an East Coast Canadian, so I'm originally a maritimer from the Halifax area, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I was born and sired, born into the home of and sired by a pedophile. Mm. So um, victimization came at me hard and early, uh, and uh, we were victims of what we would call poly-victimization in academic circles. That means that that myself, my siblings, and my mother were were subject to all manner or multiple manners of abuse. So that ranged from sexual abuse to physical abuse to psychological abuse to neglect. Mm. And so uh, my father was an incarcerated pedophile, and so he was uh, an active with both of my female siblings who are who are older than me and my oldest sibling left the home when I was 10 and she was 13 and we were later reunited <clears throat> my father subsequently went to jail and what ended up happening during that period of time is that we stayed with his wife who was his his equal uh, in terms of abusive conduct so when i was growing up i didn't really notice or understand that women could be subjected to men, that women had a lower power differential than men, mm-hmm. because my personal experience was one of abuse across uh, genders. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, she was very unkind, and he ultimately returned to the home, and, and he set his sights then on myself. I, uh, I then understood, because I knew what his, his background was and, and what he had been up to, although I well understood alcoholism and or his alcoholism and all the physical abuse and emotional abuse and neglect I knew all about the sexual abuse was not something that I was introduced to until he returned home and then 
one of the good things that happened to me was that I was born with a, a keen mind. Mm. And so he was, a, he was a persuasive predator. There are two types of predators. You can have power predators and you can have persuasive predators. He was a persuasive predator. So he wanted his victims to come on board. Mm. He wanted them to come alongside. He wanted to have persuasive power over them. He was an immense man, so he could easily have been a powerful predator, but the vast majority of his of the time he was he wanted the buy in of his victims. So he would groom and he would work his way around to trying to gain acceptance as an offender <clears throat> with his potential victims. Let's uh, let's and, let's pause right here just a second to set a little context because I think mm-hmm. you had told me before uh, that your your father and and mother or your father and his wife, I'm not sure which is correct, divorced mm-hmm. and you and your siblings ended up moving away with your father. Uh, That's correct. And then he went to jail at some point, but then he was allowed and he went to jail for for molestation or something, right? And then was able he to come did. back into the home with you and correct. your siblings? That is correct. That's exactly how that happened. My my mother was a domestic abuse victim. So, and he, when she found out that he was molesting my first sister, who was ten, I was two at the time. Mm-hmm. She left. She fled, and she took the one child that she felt was at risk. He, in turn, responded and fled in the opposite direction in of the country with. Uh, the remaining three siblings. Okay. As a result, at that time, uh, that was back in 1978, that was considered a domestic issue. He mm-hmm. told the police that that my mother's bo- new boyfriend had assaulted my, my, my then sister, who I didn't have the opportunity to grow up with. And they, they did not further investigate. And so consequently, my mother... Uh, what I what I now understand had uh, battered woman syndrome and and, the, and to some degree I think still does. So as a result, she was unable to advocate for and fight for the remaining children that she left behind. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, so this abuse uh, on you lasted for a number of years. Uh, it did. And then some, sometime in I think I remember you telling me that in your teenage years you just were like I'm gone I'm out of here is that right? Well, my father, as I had indicated, he was a persuasive predator, so he would push so far and then no further. And I had made an internal agreement in my mind that if he crossed a certain line, it's it's funny the agreements that you make when you're in a – the the sane agreements you make with yourself in in insane situations. (laughs) And so the agreement that I made with myself as a then sort of 10 to 15-year-old child was if he he went across a certain line with Mm -hmm. me sexually, then I would just have no choice but to leave. Mm. And in in those types of circumstances, it's sort of the better the devil you know than the angel you don't. So even though, you know, you... People don't understand why people don't leave abusive situations. It's because it's all you ever you have ever known. Mm. Um, and of course, in those types of situations, my father, I believe he had, in addition to being a pedophile, I believe he had other mental health issues going on. He would make us paranoid that the world wasn't safe, and and that somehow he was safe, mm. which we knew he wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, he went past the line that I had the internal agreement that mm-hmm. I had made with myself. He stepped over it. I was 15. I put a few books in a bag and left on the bus um, just before my 15th birthday, the school bus. It was a rural school, and I never went home. So where did you go? 
Good question. I went to school. It, we lived in a small rural community in uh, in Nova Scotia. And everybody knew my father was a pedophile, which was a, a, a source of immense shame and humiliation mm. because we still had to live in that community. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and children, as you can imagine, are not kind. Right around those circumstances, although although parents and teachers are. And so I think it was just everybody must have been expecting at some point I would come to school and say, this is happening to me too, mm-hmm. because it was a it was a well-known known, a publicized known that he was a pedophile. And so I, I went to school, I reported to my guidance counselor, and in, at that time, Children's Aid became involved, and I was whisked away into um, into actually the, the home of my English teacher's mother, for okay. a period of time. She was a very kind woman, and, and I was with her only for a short time until I found my biological mother, and then I moved on to be with her. Wow. Mm-hmm. So um, after you after you grew up, and I think this is at college, you, um, you found and started attending a church, and um, I think you maybe that was an influence in your life. There was a teacher or a... Um, a nun or somebody, I can't remember uh, all the specifics mm-hmm. that, that was influential mm-hmm. in your life. And so uh, as a, a younger adult, anyway, you um, you found a church and began mm-hmm. to go and were going to counseling uh, with the pastor. And mm-hmm. what happened? Well, um, to backtrack ever so briefly, sure. there was a few people throughout my, my childhood. You know, we always say, where was God? Mm-hmm when we're in these abusive situations. And and it, I've come to the sort of the personal opinion and not one that I would necessarily enforce with anybody else that that I feel that a protect, somebody was protecting me throughout my lifespan. Various people um, invested in our lives, uh, various pastors who were very good, honest, decent people took us to church camps. Our neighbor took us to church. Um, in, in many cases, they brought food baskets. I mean, we were not just abused people. We were, we were, desperately poor people as well and so I always had and I always knew that my father was not a decent man there was no sort of uh, perception that I had that 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 this is the way life should be I believed for sure that life was not like this and I had no good reason to believe that so from a very early age I I was very pious I, I believed in God mm. I I prayed to God um, I had a hunger and thirst mm. for for higher things yeah and so when I, uh, I married young, I married when I was 18, I had my first baby when I was 21. And understandably, growing up, when your personhood is formed in that type of dysfunction, you're not a, a functional person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I worked very hard to, because I was intelligent, I, I worked very hard to be acceptable, not only to myself, but to other people. But I didn't really know how to do a, a good marriage. I didn't know how to do relationships. And so what, when I wound up divorcing at 21, I sought the church for help. And it it may be difficult to believe for some people who've never been victimized and understand choiceless choices to understand how one person can roll from one victimizing situation into another. But in many cases, that's exactly what happens. And so the, the particular church that we went to offered free counseling. And so I needed help. I knew I needed help, uh, so I went to that, that pastor for free counseling, and that was the setup for the next abusive environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're, um, I think you, uh, you wrote that 
you kind of just like, I, I'm going to use the word stumbled. I don't think that's your word, but you, you just kind of stumbled through uh, adulthood, uh, suff- mm-hmm. suffering internally, suffer- suffering mentally. Uh, you married a good man mm-hmm. that you're, that you deeply love. And I think he's probably enamored with you <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you've, you've had children, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you were, I mean, you were still under an immense amount of turmoil Um Describe what what it's like to live with that and to deal with that and to struggle through that. Uh, And often nobody outside of the person that's closest to you, and sometimes not even that person knows what Mm -hmm. you're going through. I would say that even my even my husband thought that I had all my ducks in a row. And and here's the thing, uh, Marty, is that when you've grown in an abusive environment, there's all sorts of psychological coping mechanisms that you develop. And I, I want to tell you that they're very powerful. Mm. So denial, this 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 didn't happen to me. Minimization, well, it happened, but it really wasn't so bad. Um, dissociation. Uh, in where you you remove yourself from from the, the feelings you can recite what happened to you in a very intellectual way but mm. the emotional disconnect is there yeah. and repression in where you just sort of smush things down and move on and and I was professional at all at all of those things mm. they bore their their way out in in one very specific way two things happened to me repeatedly throughout my lifespan they were all based on the assumption that I understood what a predator was. I understood a predator to be toothless, trashy, uneducated, illiterate, grease monkey, tattooed. I, I had a framework that I understood predation from. Mm. And when I left that environment, when I left that predator, that was my, my strong imprint. I had lived with it for 15 years. I had it cased. And so what I did not understand is that predators can be educated, literate, degreed, articulate, mm. kind, persuasive, smooth, um, and powerful, well-paid, well-educated. Those, that did not occur to me. And so um, many, many, many elite deviants found their way, wormed their way into my lifespan. And And how that happened is that if you're not nurtured, cared for, parented, mentored, there's a hole in, mm-hmm. at least for me, there was a hole where I desperately wanted to be parented, nurtured, um, encouraged, and and mentored. And, and every single mentor that came into my life, whether it was job managers, pastors, um, <clears throat> in some cases, physicians, teachers, eventually through the course of time those individuals sexualize the relationship and that's called traumatic sexualization and it's a catastrophic betrayal for victims Mm -hmm. and so although on on the outside i could bear children i could um, care for my children i could tend for tend and care for the the second marriage that i have and i i went to school i had a really excellent job a thriving career i was a fantastic employee but there was this this hole that offenders filled with themselves and ultimately that that ate out the inside of me and and very nearly i lost my life as a result of it you're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Laurieann Thompson. We're talking about the trauma of sexual abuse, and we'll be back right after this. 
So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget. The third way is by using my Amazon shop. So that's amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Most of the books from the authors that I have interviewed are there as well as some that I just recommend for your reading pleasure. Uh, you get the same low Amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support Uncommentary. So I hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because I couldn't do it without you. Now back to this episode of Uncommentary. And uh, we're back with Lorianne Thompson and uh, we're talking about uh, sexual abuse trauma and her experience and where she's at kind of now. Uh, before we go into, uh, Lorian, before we go into what you're studying and, and what you're doing and how you hope to um, utilize what you're learning and your experiences to, to help others, um, several months ago, the, uh, the Me Too and Church Too uh, hashtags took off on social media. And I know that some of it, I don't remember how much of it was around kind of the, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings with the things that were going on there and the accusations made against him. Um, there was some other stuff. I think probably the, the Larry Nasser verdict, uh, from, uh, the doctor who'd molested so many gymnasts over the years. That's where uh, the Den Hollanders were involved in, in public speaking and whatnot. Um, but when, when there's, let's just focus not on the Kavanaugh hearings, but kind of what was going on around those, you have uh, a professional woman who is uh, years after the fact accusing a professional man of uh, sexual misconduct that took place not just years but decades prior. And you have these uh, these armies that are forming on either side. One, uh, one set of armies uh, you know, believes he's telling the truth. Uh, another set believes that she's telling the truth. Um, and the culture kind of divides into this hideous back and forth, but a lot of what is being said, and I want to remove it from that particular incident because it's not really related, but what happens around it is a lot of what's being said is there's, there's a real accusation that comes up that women just lie about these things um, to either to get attention or to advance their careers or to bring down a powerful man or it's political or, you know, you've seen it. There's a thousand reasons. Uh-huh. But as a person uh, <clears throat> yourself who has been through sexual trauma, um, uh-huh. when when you begin to hear people say women just make these stories up to for X purpose, uh, uh-huh. how does that make you feel first? And then why do you think people do that? Well, there's, there's several things that, that you're you've talked about in that brief introduction when you've talked about uh, false reports mm-hmm. so there's a there is a percentage of, of false of reports that cannot be substantiated or are, are proven to be false that rate is pretty low mm-hmm. the lowest it's two percent at the highest it's 10 mm-hmm. from from the research and um, 
And not all of those sort of false reports are ones that are proven to be false. They're just ones that cannot be proven to be true. Correct. So there's a difference. Um, the vast majority of sexual abuse leaves absolutely no traces. Mm. If you're a criminal and you wish to, uh, to invest in sexual abuse as, as a methodology of stealing from other people and, and satiating your desires, it's a very good profession, uh, criminologically speaking, to go into. 97% of offenders never see the inside of, of a jail. Wow. So therefore, your criminal records checks will only pick, about, pick up about 3% of the population, of the offending population. That's, that's low. And uh, it, the, the stats are even worse when it comes to domestic violence. They're even worse when it comes to rape. Uh, that, I mean, 3% is a high rate of incarceration. And, and uh, here's the problem that we have. And, and even in the, if you start looking back at sort of the 1950s in, in law textbooks, even in law textbooks, the victims are blamed. Wow. So the... It was only in the in the 1890s that children were were advocated for on the basis that they ought not be abused. They were advocated for on the basis that they were animals. Mm. Animals had more right than what children did rights than what children did, you know, 100 120 years ago. Right. So, so in the history of of humanity, uh, women and children have been blamed for their own victimization repeatedly this is a this is not a new thing and in fact in terms of of understanding victimization it is much easier for people to believe that a victim brought their own pain upon themselves for several reasons one we lack the the cognitive framework to understand victimization and offending because you and I are not sexual offenders, mm-hmm. and we are not, uh, when we see vulnerability, we cover it. When offenders see vulnerability, they salivate, mm-hmm. and they premeditate, and they work towards that hunt and that quote-unquote kill, even if they leave the person alive. They've taken and stolen and murdered something within them. Yeah. Leonard Shengold calls it soul murder. I would concur. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of the population have a cognitive framework, especially in Christendom, to say that women lure men. If you look at Proverbs, some of the Proverbs, where they talk about the this is the way of the adulterous woman. Mm-hmm. She eats and wipes her mouth and says she's done nothing wrong. Watch out for that woman. She'll drag you into her bed and, and have her way with you. And yet we say absolutely nothing about the shepherds who devour their sheep. Mm-hmm. That rip them apart. Yeah, and we 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 somehow believe that women uh, have this power, and it may go all the way back to to Eve and to Adam, where it you know it was at the very beginning of time in terms of in in a a Judeo Christian framework, Mm -hmm. it was the woman you gave me, Mm. the first thing out of Adam's mouth. Yeah, it was her fault. So I, I'm not sure why people are so appalled that that victims are are categorically blamed. I know when I was revictimized in my 40s, my I had a conversation with one of my family members, and you know my family members were rednecks, and and uh, and one of the male family members said, you know, you, if you're going to take this on, you better have your boots strapped up. Mm-hmm. Well, I had my boots blown off. Yeah, <laughs> what boots? 
what boots, yeah. what feet, yeah. you know. And um, so I think that, that as a culture, we have to build a cognitive framework to understand predation and to understand victimization. And we have a long way to go from a sociological perspective. And we look at if, you know, we, we understand that, that things are problems. But from a sociological perspective, it, it, unless we can establish that sexual abuse is an abuse of power and it is non-consensual mm-hmm. it, it, and that that is a problem for women and children and even adult males to some degree uh, being perpetrated against by other um, adult offenders that there's an abuse of power until we can have a, a robust discourse and church to and me too has done a lot for that to bring that into the spotlight but that needs to remain in the spotlight for a long period of time before society will say yes this is a pandemic mm. before that the society at large will understand the the global proportions uh, where human flesh is is one of the most sought after commodities globally mm. Um, so talk to uh, a person who's listening potentially who has been through sexual trauma. They've yet to talk to anybody about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this could be a teenager. Uh, this could be a person who's in middle age. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this event or series of events has happened to them. Uh, they, haven't, mm-hmm. they haven't processed it. So talk to them uh, for a couple minutes about uh, what they're feeling and where they're at and then if there's anything that they need to do. Are they still in their abusive situation? Let's assume that it happened and is over. Okay. All right. Well, here's the thing is that abuse is one of the most disempowering, dehumanizing things that somebody can go through. And I understand that you as a victim might not even understand that you have been a victim at this point just that you've been through something and you're really hurting or that you're really numb or you're really confused or you're unsure what's next. And I want to say to you that there's that nobody should be pushing you to name or to uh, handle things that you're not yet ready for. Mm. Your mind and your body and your soul and your spirit has coping mechanisms to deal with the trauma that you've been through. And when you're ready, there are resources there to help you to come to terms with what's happened to you, to find vocabulary to for what's happened to you, to be able to empower you to move forward in whatever fashion you so choose. Mm-hmm. Whatever the solution to the problem of abuse is going to be for you, it will not do what abuse itself has done. So therefore, it will not be out of control or out of your control. It will not steal your voice. It will give you a voice. It will not overwhelm you. It will be gradiated at a, at a ratio and titrated in a way that you can process it, and it will empower you. What can churches do uh, to come alongside uh, victims of abuse either, uh, and and let's assume that some of these might even be ongoing, Mm -hmm. um, but especially uh, things that have happened in someone's past that they haven't Mm -hmm. come to grips with yet. Um, How can Mm -hmm. churches help shepherd people through these these times, uh, get them to the other side, get them healed? Uh, most pastors, even, even good pastors aren't qualified. Uh, they're not trained and they know it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to deal mm-hmm. with this kind of trauma. Uh, mm-hmm. how can churches help? 
I think churches need to recognize two things. Well, more than two things. But the first two that are that come to my mind is number one, you're to be a safe community and you're to be a safe people and safe people stop saying stupid things. Uh, and some of the stupid things that, that churches need to cease saying is that it's, you know, you must forgive your offender mm. because forgiveness is a process and it takes time. And uh, I think it's very important that clergy and laity stay in their own lane. Mm. You know, churches can, trauma victims come to the church with a wide variety, like you name it, mm -hmm. survivors have it. You've probably heard of the early childhood, uh, sorry, adverse childhood effects study, the ACEs study. So the higher, higher the uh, adverse effects that you had as a child, the more health problems you have as an adult. You uh, can have a, a, I would have guessed that that was the case, but I didn't mm -hmm. know about the study. Mm -hmm. It was an incredible study by Vincent Folletti back in the late 1990s, and he had a, a huge cohort of people that he was trying to do a weight loss study for, and certain subsection of the population would lose weight, but then rapidly gain it back. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they discovered when they sort of did another study around this is that these people were trauma victims, and all the trauma that they incurred, or the vast majority of it, on a scale of zero to ten, occurred during uh, during childhood. Wow. It's called adverse childhood effects study. So. Early and prolonged and protracted trauma has an impact on people's health, not only their mental health, but their physical health. Sometimes people are not able to cope relationally. It makes complications in all sorts of financial areas in their lives, as well as health areas in their lives. There's a whole gamut of things that churches can do to support and come around uh, trauma victims. They can listen to them. They can uh, they can help provide practical needs like bring meals, help do the laundry, uh, help with childcare needs mm -hmm. when the survivor might be you know in a therapeutic process. Uh, the churches can inform themselves. They can they can learn something what it means to be a sexual or an abuse survivor in general, and they can understand very basic and rudimentary things about offenders so that they don't somehow play back into the victimization of, of the victim by the offender, that they help to protect the victim and the victim's family, and they help to minister to the, to the victim and, and her extended family, that they can help the victim get on her feet financially, emotionally, psychology, psychologically. They can help pay for trauma-informed care. There's, there's a whole host of things that churches can do. They can learn to give space to trauma victims mm -hmm. as, as opposed to swarming them yeah. uh, when they first walk in the door. So, and it's also very important that churches learn to stay in their their own lane, that they don't try to become trauma-informed physicians. Mm. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work out well in the churches that I've been associated with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where can people find you online? You, I mean, you're, we, I mean, I know that you could talk about this for two or three more hours. Uh, mm -hmm. And never repeat yourself. Um, and, and you've got a lot of good stuff. You write pretty consistently. You're very active. Where can people find you online to either connect with you or just uh, keep up with what you're writing and doing? I write at uh, lauriannethompson.com, L-O-R-I-A-N-N-E, Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com. And it can be found on Twitter. An easy Google search will find it, just about everything you need to know about me and everything you never did want to know about me, too. <laughs> and, of course, it's Anne with an E because that's much more elegant. 
It's Anne of Green Gables. It's much. It's much more distinguished. <laughs> and you're from that side of the of the uh, of the country too. Yes, where the red dirt and the potatoes roam. That's awesome, Lorianne Thompson. Thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as 2 bucks a month, swag level 3 bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria. <laughs>